Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning into Series 3 of the Wide Open Road podcast. It's great to be back to deliver a series of podcasts where professional athletes share their very personal stories about their transition to life after sport. I'm Ed Kemp, and I'm delighted that Series 3 is up and running, and I'm especially excited about today's guest, one of this country's best-known middle-distance runners, Craig Mottram OLY. Craig is a four-time Olympian, having competed in the 5,000 metres distance at the Sydney 2000, Athens 2004, Beijing 2008, and London 2012 Olympic Games. And it's terrific Craig is kicking off this Series 3 right in the middle of Tokyo 2020, even though we are now well past the middle of 2021. Craig's best result was in Athens when he finished 8th in the 5,000 metres, but he also won bronze at the 2005 World Championships and silver at the 2006 Commonwealth Games. He's best known for the courage he had in taking on the African runners, who have dominated distance running literally forever. He was not intimidated, and if you want to get an understanding of just how incredible he was, please Google his 2005 World Championship run. It is quite amazing. As Craig turned his mind to life after sport, he and his wife Christine established Elite Wellbeing, which aims to educate, empower, and encourage participants to be well and be elite. Welcome, Craig Mottram. Craig, it's great to see you, mate. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Now, mate, with Tokyo 2020 currently being played out, even though it's 2021, talk to us a little bit about your experience. What sort of emotions get drawn up when an Olympic Games is on? Yeah, Ed, good to, to be with you. Great to see you. It's been too long. Um, isn't it? It's interesting. Today actually is the first day the track and field is on in the Tokyo 2020, 2021, whatever we're calling it, Olympic Games. So, I've actually sat down today for the first time and actually spent an hour in front of the TV watching the Olympics. I found it a little bit difficult to get engaged in, in wanting to watch the Olympics this time around. Um, just with everything else that's going on, and we spoke earlier off uh, off camera, if you like, about our kids and all the extra time and commitments that we need to give those guys and girls at the moment. And I think that's been my priority as opposed to you know being fully invested in, in watching our elite athletes go and perform. So Tokyo has been a really interesting sort of build-up for me. But watching the athletics today, uh, I know a lot of the athletes that are, that are competing and representing Australia. I've had, um, whether it was in my athletic career, had a lot to do with them, either racing against them or um, just sort of helping and watching and being around them at the track and things like that with what we do from a work perspective but now, now. So it's been really interesting to actually watch from the other side uh, as opposed to an athlete that's actually trying to still go out there and compete. And I said to my wife yesterday... These Tokyo Olympics, actually the first Olympic Games I either didn't compete in or didn't try to get to for 20 years. So I, my first Olympic Games were in 2000 and then went to 04, 08, 12. Um, and I was still trying in 2016 to go to Rio. I just wasn't quite good enough. So uh, I think for the first time ever, I'm able to actually sit back and enjoy just watching the Olympics um, or the track and field part of it anyway as a pure spectator and having no sort of invested interest in it in, in any way, shape or form. So it's been really good. Um, my experience, I suppose, with the Olympics has been mixed. It, it hasn't always been the competition that I've performed my best at, um, but it's always, every time they come around, every four years, it's the pinnacle of sport across the board, You know, whether it's kayaking, swimming, athletics, boxing, whatever it might be. It's the one sport, it's the one moment, rather, that everyone in their respective nation sits down and watches sport. Um, and the irony of that is for a lot of the athletes, it's what we do week in and week out, but it's the only time now that everyone sits down and watches it. So there's a whole other level of expectation uh, put on put on these sort of two weeks of, of sport and engagement. And well, I think one of the biggest areas that's come out of all of this, and we've seen it with lots of different things um, in the social media and on different platforms and everything at the moment in regards to mental health, 
uh, the stress the athletes are under in particular this year with all the restrictions and everything else and how we're finding a lot of athletes pre and post their performances are actually talking about it openly around how difficult they found it and things like that. And during my time at the Games, that was never a topic that was ever discussed. Um, so I think there's there's been a lot of changes since I first went to the Olympics to now and obviously in the last 18 months in particular for how people view the Games. I mean, it's interesting what you say about your journey. So, you know, 20-odd years and, you know, competed from 2000, 2004, 2008 and 2012. And if my, my memory serves me correctly, you were looking to potentially flick across from a, a middle distance runner to a marathoner to do Rio. Do you get itchy feet? Because, I mean, you know, you, you're, you're not old and you still look pretty damn fit. So do you ever think to yourself, gee whiz, you know, maybe I should just have a, have a run around? You know what, I actually don't. I am very happy with what I achieved in, in my career. I absolutely did everything I could to bring out my best when I ran. You know, I emptied the well, for choice of a better term, with it. And I think I was really lucky. In 2016, I tried to qualify for the marathon in Rio. I ran in London. Um, I ran the London Marathon and missed out by a fair margin, 10 minutes or something, I think, in the end, I missed out by. Um, and I knew at the end of that that I was done. And I wasn't physically done. Physically, I was probably still able to, to go around again and keep performing at a relatively high level, but mentally, I just wasn't interested. And I think from that perspective, I'm lucky. A lot of athletes say, you know, they're mentally willing, but they're physically unable or not willing. Uh, but I always reckon it's the other way around. I just think athletes are not necessarily aware enough to say that I just don't want to do it anymore, or they're not confident enough to say I'm over it. I've just I've had enough. But for me, in 2016, I was well and truly over it. I'd had enough. Um, and I was just not as engaged in um, as I had been previously. And I think that's a really good place to be um, in many respects because it allows you to close that door and move on and focus on other things in life. I think the athletes that their career ends early through injury and things like that would be really frustrating. But for me, mine ended because I just didn't want to do it anymore. And I'm really happy with that. So to answer your question, I never want to run at a high level ever again. And I said to my wife, if she ever sees me going to the track to do Masters athletics or whatever, just to shoot, because I just... It's just not me anymore. I'm very happy with what I've done and I'm very happy with what we're doing now. And that's that's really interesting about the journey you've gone on from the perspective of what I'd call being fulfilled, if you like. You're not sort of looking back going, you know, I, I could have, I should have, and then you haven't sort of, as you put, you wrung everything you possibly could out of yourself. And that's a really interesting parallel with some athletes who I've spoken to who maybe don't think quite like that and are almost thinking, you know, I wish I could have done this and, and haven't maybe moved on. And I, I imagine that when we get to talking a little bit about your journey to life after sport, that that would have helped you move on from sport. Um, because, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who may have seen Craig run around the tan or or just go for, for a light jog, he's not jogging at five and a half or six Ks, you know, six minute Ks, he's running at probably three minute or under, even for a bloke who's uh, no longer running at the elite level. But can you tell us a little bit about life as a, an elite athlete, and we're talking about a middle-distance runner who is competing against the African nations who are have been as good at, at that discipline forever, um, and they dominate in every Olympics, every World Championships, and then you've come along and you've you've challenged them at their own game. And as I've mentioned in the uh, intro to this podcast. If anyone wants to see just how incredible a runner you were, you've only got to go back to the 2005 World Championships where you won the, the bronze medal, but just the way that you took it took it to them with two laps to go and really cranked up the pace says that you were, you know, you were right up there at that particular point in your career. But tell us a little bit about 
living in that bubble when you are preparing yourself for an Olympic Games and, and do you have time to have balance in your life where you can focus on other things? Yeah, look, it's a good question and it's a, a long a, a long question, Ed. Uh, um, there's a bit in it. But um, I think I was very lucky in, in my career. I, I never grew up as a young athlete, you know, aspiring to be an international runner uh, or go to the Olympics or anything like that. I didn't really start to take on the high-performance side of sport until I was 17 or 18 years old. And we look at it a lot at the moment with young athletes and this specialisation of a really young age and the burnout factor that comes with that. But for me, um, I never specialised in the sport of track and field or middle distance running until I was 18 years old. I was playing soccer, I was doing triathlon uh, and other things like that. And I think from many perspectives, uh, from many points of view, that gave me a more aggressive run into senior athletics, into high-performance senior athletics. I wasn't, um, I didn't have reservations. I didn't know about the African athletes. I didn't know that they were dominant in their disciplines. I just went in with the attitude like I took at school sport when I was 17 and 18 years old, that when the gun went, you were there to try to win. It didn't matter who you were, whether you were competing against Scotch or St. Kevin's or whoever it might be. I was a Geelong grammar student. You're out there to compete against whoever lined up. And I remember in, in 1999, I ran my first international race in Belfast, the World Cross Country Championships, and I finished 17th. And I was the first non-African finisher um, in that race. And in the press conference afterwards, one of the first questions I got from a from a US journalist was, "Was it feel like it's amazing to be the first non-African finisher? And I said, well, what does that mean? I finished 17th. There were 16 other people in front of me. That was pretty ordinary. That was my response because I actually hadn't considered it at all until that moment. Um that we weren't supposed to compete against Africans. But that was, it was just mind-blowing to me that that was the way people viewed the sport of middle-distance running. And I think it's a, it was a real trap back then that people had a preconceived idea as to where we should be finishing in these competitions, where for me, competition is simply that. Whoever turns up, you run against them or you compete against them and it doesn't really matter how big or small or where they come from or what colour they are. So I think for me, I was very lucky. I was able to enter into the performance space in sport and actually have an open mind. And one of my biggest strengths and one of my the biggest areas for me to focus on during my career, keep an open mind and actually not get stuck into that rut or that rhythm of what others are doing. Focus on what I'm doing. And you, you, you refer to it as a bubble. Um, and I suppose it is, but that bubble really should be about what do you need to do to be the best athlete you can be. And for me at that time, that meant that I was quite selfish, rightly or wrongly. Um, I made some friends and I also made some um, some people you know, not, not particularly like me for various reasons because I was quite happy to just do what was in my best interest and what I needed to do to be the best I could be. And I think back then that was the way it was. Um, social media wasn't quite as advanced back then as it is now. Um, sport was... You know, the technology side of sport was still in its infancy, all this GPS tracking, heart rate monitoring, uh, sports physiology, all of those sort of things are still quite basic in middle distance running anyway. So it was all about effort and what you needed to do to be the best you could be. And um, for me, that was making sure that I was where I needed to be and I was doing only what was in my interest um, to be the best athlete that I could be. And, uh, and that made it really challenging. It made it really isolating. Um, and I remember uh, 2008, um, off the back of the Beijing Olympics when I was uh, one of the favourites to, to win a medal, I suppose, in the 5,000, if you like, off the back of the 05 World Champs, which you mentioned, and the Com Games in 06 in Melbourne. Um, after the Games, I made a lot of changes, moved from one coach to another, from one brand, Nike, to Adidas, made some significant changes and made them myself. And the only person to survive the cull was my wife, Christine, and that was, and that was literally <laughs> what, it, what it was like. 
Um, unfortunately, back then, we just didn't have that same level of support that a lot of the athletes are now seeing, which I think is really, really important. And, you know, it takes quite a strong and resilient person and an athlete to be able to go through all of that and still want to participate in sport. And not every athlete is that way. I was just lucky that I've got that mindset to be able to push through those type of things. What you just said before was fascinating. You didn't grow up wanting to be an Olympic middle distance runner. And I imagine that a lot of your competitors who were standing next to Africans or the African nations going, there's no way I can win. So they're almost defeated before they even get to the line. So that's a fascinating insight in just into, the, into your mindset. One thing which every athlete has basically said is they have to be selfish. In order to be the best at what you can be or the best you can possibly be, especially in a sport as demanding as athletics, if you think about the selfishness and the ability to, if you like, uh, push all the other distractions to one side, that must also be extremely helpful in in what you're doing in life after sport too, when it comes to just focusing on winning a pitch, getting some new business or whatever it might be, and also trying to explain to the people that you mentor and coach that there is a way where you can actually put bad things out of your mind for a period and focus on the good in order to get the best out of yourself. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got to be able to channel you know, that side of it. And I don't think – I think back with and a lot of the athletes I've, I've – um, I've seen that you've spoken to previously with, the, with these podcasts, sort of a little bit uh, of the older generation, if you like, when that sort of mentality was well accepted. And my wife, Christine, who just sort of snuck in in the background there a minute ago, she's done a PhD in athlete wellbeing. Um, and her area of specialty is, uh, is the adolescent brain, which we've spoken about, but also performance anxiety and, thing, and creating an environment where you can be at your best self. Um, and that selfishness that we talk about, is for many people not necessarily in their best interest. It tends to can be isolating. It can make them feel alone. It can make them um, feel that they don't have the support structure or network in place, which for many athletes can actually work negatively against them. They feel and think that they need to be selfish and they need to make those decisions and disengage with this person or that person or I can't speak for that group or whatever it might be. And that can sometimes come back and bite you on the bum later when you actually feel like you might need some help from somebody or have that engagement with the group that you hadn't previously had because you burnt that bridge for whatever reason. So I think one of the new ways of looking at all of this sort of stuff is how, how do we build a, a network of people or a group of people or support structure around us that is engaging, keeps us in a balanced lifestyle but allows us to optimise our performance. And that doesn't necessarily mean sacrificing going to birthdays or, um, you know, going to a wedding. I remember back in 2007, my brother got married to Jenny Screen in Adelaide and I was racing in Ostrava in the Czech Republic and I didn't fly back for it because I was racing. And I said, no, no, I've got a 5,000-metre race on it. I won the race and whatever and I ran really well, but I never got to see my younger brother get married. And that's still a conversation that we have, you know, 15 years later that I chose a 5,000-metre running racing in Ostrava uh, over his wedding. And, and they're things, I, you know, to be quite honest, I didn't have to do, but I just felt that at that point in my career, that was the decision that was best in my running best interest. But whether it was in the interest of my, you know, life at that point or beyond sport, you just really don't know those sort of things, do you, at the time? So uh, I, I reckon the way things are moving with sport, with social media, with the awareness of mental health and well-being and those sort of things, this, this term selfishness is, is changing. Um, I think selfishness is, is in the eye of the beholder, but selfishness can also be um, being strong in what you need um, in regards to I want more support or I need more access to this or I don't want to go away for that amount of time. I don't want to make that sacrifice. It's not going to help me perform. And those sort of things back when I was competing and back when you were a young man, it, selfishness meant 
making tough calls and isolating yourself potentially and going up to train in the snow because it was like rocky and it was harder and all of those sort of things but it's not like that anymore and it shouldn't be like that anymore and we need to we need to work with this new generation of athletes because times have changed platforms have changed the way training is looked at and evolved over the last five or six years if we don't change we'll get left behind we're going to move on in a second but the mental health side is is really interesting i mean if you look at Simone Biles, the American gymnast, and what she's gone through, even if you look at what's happening with Naomi Osaka and, and the yeah, pressure that she's been under, the, you know, social media is a, you know, is obviously can be a significant inhibitor and can really, really destroy people. And I think it's, I would imagine athletes like yourself and your peer group who have now finished are probably pretty happy that you weren't put in touch with this this social media phenomenon, which is, you know, destroying people's lives. It's quite, it's quite sad, but we're going to move on. Before we start talking about life after sport, a lot of people who, who are listening to this podcast would have run the tan track. Now, the tan track record uh, that you set some years ago is 10.08 seconds. Now, that's uh, running nearly four kilometres in just over 10 minutes. For most of us, that's well out of reach. I want to ask you two questions. Did you run up Anderson Street for the record run? And just give us sort of amateur runners a, a, a sort of one or two tips about how they can potentially achieve their personal best running around the tan. Yeah, so you do run up Anderson Street. The official way to race the tan is up Anderson Street. You start at the horse troughs, which is directly opposite Swan Street Bridge. Um, you run along the bottom of the river and then up Anderson Street and around. A lot of people would view that as the harder way to run it. It's actually the faster and easier way to run it because you do the incline all in a short period of time and then sort of 60%, 70% of the back half of the course is downhill and it's a long sweeping downhill. So you can actually carry more speed doing it that way than trying to grind all the way up doing it um, anti-clockwise. So up Anderson Street is the official way. It's the only way that you can set the record, but it's actually the quickest way um, and probably the easier way, to be honest. A um, couple of points, how to... How to maximise your lap around the tent. I, I say this about running. It's about being prepared to be in a prolonged level of uncomfortableness. So, in other words, we're talking about other words, pain. Correct. Running is not an easy sport, and even for you know the best athletes in the world, we still suffer the same way. We just do it at a slightly quicker pace than others. Uh, and I think it's just accepting that um, you know you're going to go and put your body in a position it doesn't want to be, and it's working through the mental side of it and, and just saying look for the next 15 minutes or whatever it might be my body is going to you know, want me to not do this but I'm out here I've got this goal in mind and I'm just going to persist and and uh, and keep pushing through it there's a few you know sort of tactical things you can think about you can focus on your breathing um, trying to breathe in every three steps out every three steps those sort of things to try to take your mind off what your your body is feeling or what your mind is telling you to feel Paula Radcliffe actually who used to hold the women's world record for the marathon used to count to 20 repeatedly for the, for the distance of the marathon when it got really tough just to take her mind off what she was doing. So it's trying to find little tricks like that that can just disengage that mind a bit from what's actually happening and what your mind is telling you you're feeling and, um, and be brave and go out and have a go. Look, the worst thing that can happen generally when you go running is you slow down. So be it. It's not a bad outcome at the end of the day. Well, ladies and gentlemen who are listening out there, um, just uh, check with your doctor first, please. Yeah, um, so I said generally. I said generally <laughs> the worst thing that can happen is you slow down. Some may slow permanently. We don't want that outcome. No, we definitely don't want that outcome. So when you started to flick your mind to life after sport, we're going to talk about elite wellbeing in a minute, the business that yourself and Christine set up, I think, in 2012. 
What did you do to prepare yourself for life after sport? What were the things that you did to make sure that you had a plan B? So if, I guess if if you stopped running after London, for example, and you're only a very young man then, um, yeah. you had something to go, go and do, not just start from scratch basically at probably late 20s. Yeah, it's a really good question and it's one of the big issues I've, in, in our sport of track and field anyway that a lot of the athletes don't give enough forward thinking to what's coming and it's inevitable. At some point you will have to transition out of sport into something else. Um, what that is is entirely up to you. But for me personally, I, I was lucky. My I went to a great school when I was growing up. I did my secondary schooling at Geelong Grammar. Um, I transitioned into university straight out of school. I actually started at um, a dip ed, so a bachelor of education, directly out of school and then took a leave of absence from that in 1999-2000 to focus on running. But I then continued to do those studies online and switched over to marketing um, and did a marketing degree online at Deakin University over the course of six years, I think it was, via CD-ROM and DVD and whatever it was back then, <laughs> reverse chat phone calls uh, and everything else. But it was always just something that was burning in the background to, to chip away at that so that at the end of the day I would have something to fall back on. And you know what? It was actually really interesting. Um, I used a lot of my real-life sport scenarios, so contracts with Nikes and Telstra and uh, Holden and the like during my sporting career as assignments for university. I was actually really living them. I was negotiating contracts. I was working with uh, with other marketing teams and doing uh, photo shoots and all of that sort of stuff. And I actually used some of that in my university assignments, and uh, which was really practical. And it actually then helped my experience grow as I went along. So I tried to live uh, my best sporting life, but also educate myself and get qualified in the process. And I think if I had advice to athletes that are, that are currently out there now, it's, there's never been an easier time to pick up skills online, no matter where you are in the world, whatever it is you're doing. You always have enough time to do other things. And the way the world has gone in the last 18 months, things are at your fingertips. You can almost run your business or your university studies through your mobile phone these days. Um, so I think it's really, really important that they take up another skill. It just helps with that balance. And we talked about being selfish and everything before. It just helps with that balance and switching your mind off from potentially the stresses that your sport's bringing or whatever your profession is bringing. So for me, the planning for, for after sport wasn't something I needed to give a lot of thought to. It was just second nature. I was always raised that way, you know, that the, that education was important and that career goes beyond sport. Um, I also started after 2012 looking for work. Um, for a number of reasons, through necessity, because my contracts in sports started to dry up because I wasn't as good as I used to be. Um, and the nature of what was happening in athletics meant that the money wasn't quite as good as it had been previously as well. So I actually started to network around. I, I'd met you know, a lot of great people. The Mark Webber Challenge that we actually met at in 2006, I met a lot of really good people through those sort of opportunities that were put in front of me through sport. And I reached out to people and I went and had a coffee. And I just started networking and letting people know that my career was sort of winding down and that inevitably I would need to transition into a job um, after that it sort of all ended and I didn't want a full-time job immediately it was baby steps it was you know two days a week or three days a week just to get to dip my toe in the water and actually find out what I wanted to do because a lot of athletes never get that opportunity when they're competing they don't really know what they want to do when they finish so it was just trial a bit of trial and error and I actually did a favor for somebody while I was an athlete of, of good caliber this guy's son actually wanted me to take him for a training run for his birthday so i did that and he said oh how much do you want for it uh to take this boy for his birthday present i said oh nothing I, I love running any kid that wants to run i'm happy to take them out um for a session so i did it didn't charge him anything nothing it was just as a favor and then he actually heard that i was networking for a job 
about four or five years later, I uh, heard from the AFL, I actually caught up with Gillan McLaughlin before he was the CEO and was just playing around with that idea. And this guy rang me and said, um, I heard you're looking for a job. Gillan's just called me, said, you're looking for a job. And I said, well, actually, I am. And he offered me a job right then and there. He said, you did my son a favour and me a favour four years ago. Now I know where you're at in life. I want to help you out. And he actually gave me my first job outside of running in 2013, I think it was, that I went and started working for him. And uh, that then gave me that experience and off I went. So I'd, I think it's just being, you've got to be open-minded and you've got to be unafraid to put your toe out there, dip your toe in the water and, and, and go and network. One of the greatest things athletes have, which we just underappreciate, is the amount of people that we meet in sport and in life. And no one will ever hold or begrudge you if you ask the question, hey, can we have a coffee? I want to chat about something. People love it if you ask their advice because that makes them feel important. So as athletes, we hold a lot of cards in that respect. We should be putting ourselves out there more and we should be leaning on those people that we can network in within sport to provide opportunities for some of these athletes that are starting to transition out of out of one career into another. You're spot on. There's no question that probably got more power, if you like, or cachet while you're still competing. So the well, idea to do that whilst you're still competing, I think, is a, is a really, really powerful message. It's actually funny. I remember very well when we met at the Weber Challenge, and this is 2006, so you'd just gone through the Com Games, I think you were, you know, one of the favourites for the fifteen hundred, and I, the guy clipped you and you fell, which probably cost you a medal, if not the gold medal. But I just remember two things: one was your training, and uh, up at the Launceston Country Club, you were doing stride throughs. Um, but we're not talking about stride throughs of twenty or thirty metres. We're talking about stride throughs the length of a, a long par five. I think it was about five hundred and twenty metres, and you'd you'd sprint, then you'd jog back, and you just you kept doing that for what seemed like for hours and hours. But the other thing was. You had a bag for your shoes. Uh, I think we're, we're away for four or five days. And uh, I said, Greg, how many pairs of shoes does Nike give you? He's like, oh, one a week. Um, and I said, what do you do with your shoes when you, after a week, you just toss them out? I've, I've worn them out after a week. So there's another bit of trivia that Nike was probably actually quite, quite happy with you left they're, them. they're still fighting Nike products throughout the whole of Tasmania after that challenge. <laughs> I when I said to Nike, I was doing it. They took me to the, the store in the city in Melbourne and said, basically, what do you need? And I was just we just took every every item we could find in the store and chucked it in as many bags as we could and took it to Tassie. And I, I've still got product. From, <laughs> I actually still have products from 2006 from that Weber Challenge in my, in my cupboard. It was – if I had have known what I was getting myself into, I would have prepared slightly differently. It was, it was off the charts, that whole Weber Challenge thing in Tassie. That was one of the best experiences I reckon I ever had in sport and some of the opportunities that came from that. And the networks I've made and these conversations that we're having now, still 15 years later, all started there, which, again, just back to that point, you never know where those relationships are going to take you and, and where they're going to end up. So, you know, never be afraid to, to engage and make friends and, and see what happens. Look, it's a really, really good lesson for every athlete out there. Now, mate, tell us about elite wellbeing. Um, you started in 2012. Your wife, Christine, is a psychologist, as you mentioned, and there's obviously a beautiful synergy between an elite athlete and the mindset that you can bring and the lessons that you can bring and a psychologist who's got the, if you like, the training in, in mental yeah. skills, and clearly that would be a, you know, a match made in heaven, mate. Well, it has its moments, I promise you that. But, um, <laughs> look, it, it sort of evolved. Christine had been at me for a while in terms of setting up this sort of um, – this business and it evolved organically I suppose Christine was always doing psychology she didn't know a lot about elite level sport before she met me and then she saw a lot of 
challenges in that in that space and that sort of grew their passion to continue on with their studies in that psychology area and then eventually finish with a PhD in, in athlete wellbeing. But in 2012, we started the business literally on paper. It, it really didn't have any direction in terms of this is what it was going to be and this is the, the path we're going to take because I was still trying to network into a work opportunity basically as we spoke about earlier and in 2013 I got a job working for another company um, and Elite Wellbeing just sort of sat there as a you know as a business on, on paper and then in 2015, 2016 I realised that the commercial world of sport, sport licensing which was the role I was doing wasn't necessarily for me. Um, and I started taking up a coaching role at Haleybury College just as a, as a middle-distance cross-country coach there just to keep my sort of passion for athletics going just as a casual sort of role. And we won the premiership in our first year and off the back of that, the school approached and asked whether I'd be interested to take the head coaching role and did I know any other athletes that would want to come in and assist with coaching as well? And then my mind started to play around with how could we organically grow this business into a into a coaching business what offerings could we provide to a school like Halebury and other schools and then how does Christine tap into that business from a well-being point of view given that at that point literally in 2016-17 student and athlete well-being was at the forefront of everybody's mind um, and we already had this elite well-being concept on paper there and, and going and we just did up a proposal to the school about how sport and well-being um, which is what we believe comes together nicely in terms of you need to be happy, you need to be healthy, you need to be well to actually perform at your best. And uh, we built models and programs and pitches and put it into schools uh, and into organisations in and around Melbourne. Um, and we now provide sporting and sport and wellbeing programs to 11 different private schools in Melbourne. We've got 30 or so uh, coaches that work for the business that go in and facilitate the programs that we run. And we love it. We basically go into schools and into organisations and we help them be better, help them be fit and healthy and enjoy what they're doing. And if you think about when you're at school and yep. the fact that those programs didn't exist back then, but I mean, what are some of the things that you've learnt from being an athlete that you can transfer across not only running your own business but more importantly from this context uh, imparting knowledge onto to young impressionable kids that if you set them up into routines to eat well, exercise regularly and do their best at school, you set them up for the rest of their lives because you're building discipline into them and they're not even realising they're doing it. Look, it's not our goal to go into schools and develop elite athletes. That's certainly not what elite wellbeing is about. It's to go into school environments and help student athletes balance life, school, social media, extracurricular activities and all of those things like the broader scope of where the direction of this business has gone is not what we envisaged it in the beginning it sort of evolved through through need i suppose and what's happening with technology with covid and with all the other circumstances that have come up over the last five years and you you raised an interesting point at the very beginning of that question one of the pictures Campbell grammar actually which is one of our other schools uh, when i met the head of sport there I basically said to him on arrival, I want to introduce a program here that I wish that I'd had at school. Straight away, bang, okay, here's clean slate. You can do what basically what you like. And again, this is where we under undersell ourselves as athletes. The guy that's been to four Olympic Games with a business partner that's a doctor in psychology carries a lot of weight if we prepare to back ourselves and go out there and, and implement programs that we believe and we're confident in what we deliver is going to have a positive outcome for the students and for the school. And that's what we push in there. And we get a lot of buy-in from the kids. We make it fun. We make it relevant. Um, it's not just about sport performance. I think people miss the miss the point a lot of the time these programs in schools 
we're working with adolescents, with young people. It's a lot of our role in actual fact is to take stuff out of the programs. We look at the program and the first question from whoever it is that's making decisions is, oh, where do we need to add stuff? How can we make it better? What, and I said, well, actually, by looking at it, it looks like we should probably take some stuff out and start to specialise in this, that and the other, spend a bit more time on that. It's, you're a jack of all at the moment and you're not really mastering any of these areas. Let's get this program cemented in. Let's get the students doing this. Let's get them spending more time focused on their studies. Uh, and then off the back of that, set them into a routine and then you can start to grow. You don't really know where it's going to go until you actually pull it apart and see where the time and where the opportunities are um, and letting these younger students and staff find some time to actually decide what it is they want to do rather than just keep chucking more and more stuff at them because there's just so much going on at the moment. And I think time's an interesting point in the fact that I think as a father of four children, I think sometimes we can get to the point where we're just overloading kids with stuff to do, you know, sport, academics, uh, tutors, music, whatever, and sometimes I feel like we actually need to take a step back, give the kids some space to breathe. Um, it's crazy at the moment. With all the homeschooling and everything that's been going on, some of these kids are on technology for eight, ten hours a day, um, and then they're expected to do homework after hours and do you know, another two or three hours of online learning you know, with their homework and things like that, and then we get these schools. I don't know if you've heard of the term in the last 18 months. Everyone would have, well, how are you going to pivot? We need to pivot the business. We need to do this. We need to do that to deal with these time. Pivot, I can't stand that word. It's a terrible word. But when schools said to us, you know, all this training, all this cross-country, all this athletics, we need you to do online sessions. I said, you know what? I said, to be quite honest, if, if it were me, and again, I just keep bringing it back to what, what I would have wanted when I was a kid. I don't, I've been online enough. I don't want to be online being told how to run or to do this or to do that. I want to actually get out and do stuff. So rather than doing one hour online, you know, training sessions where we're taking kids through exercises and things like that, we actually just quickly sent them out some information um, where they could engage in it, click on it, and then they go out and do it themselves and report back. They could use GPS tracking and they could engage that way. They didn't have to be physically sitting in front of the screen to do it. You know, from that perspective, it was really successful. We wanted to get kids back out doing things that they wanted to do, um, obviously within all the rules and restrictions that were in place. But time has never been more important now. We had kids doing sport in the morning, sport time during the day, then doing PE, then doing extra sport after school, and then going on to play footy in the... You know, in the sample or whatever it might be, um, and they were doing three or four lots of sport every day, and they, there was no one coordinating any of that. There was no one overseeing that, and then they wondered why they get an email from the physio saying, "Look, Donnie's got a stress fracture, or um, so and so's burnt out, or sick, or got glandular fever, or chronic fatigue, or whatever it is." And that sort of burnout stuff was was quite prominent in a lot of the independent schools that we were working with in the early days because they they just felt more was better. And that's no one's fault. That's just everyone wanted a piece of the pie. You know, like when you've got talented kids academically, the teachers want to help them get the best result they can. They push them. Then you've got them that, and they're physically talented. The coaches want to push them to make them better. They're musically gifted. The music teachers want to get them, you know, for three hours a day. And so one of our biggest roles being was to actually find out, you know, where the strength of these students were and how we could actually manage the time better to allow them to focus on those strengths and what they wanted. It's a great approach and well done, mate, on getting it up and running. Uh, www.elitewellbeing.com.au. I think that's what it is. It um, is correct. And so, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to jump on and, and have a look at some of the programs that Craig and Christine run, uh, they're brilliant. So please jump on there and have a look at Elite Wellbeing. Two more quick questions before we wrap up. 
Many of the athletes that I've spoken with over the last couple of years on this podcast series talk about the power of mentors and the importance of mentors, not only on the field of play or on the track in your in your case, but more importantly from this context, off the field of play and, and maybe people that can help you work out what you're going to do when you when you grow up, so to speak. Can you talk about some of the mentors that you've that you've had across your life and 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 the point you made earlier about the favour that you did for that fellow that le- led you to your first job? I don't think athletes quite understand just how much currency they've got and how a tiny little thing that they would take for granted could be the difference between you forming a lifelong friendship with somebody to your point of eminence that can actually have influence. And I've always likened it to if you're a footballer or you work in a football, an AFL club, if someone asks you, could you take, could they take their child down and just be in the rooms after the game? Uh, most people go, oh, you know, I can't do that, it's too much of a hassle because they do it every day. But I saw the power of that once and it blew me away. And I think the lesson that you mentioned earlier is just terrific. Get out there, meet people, and you never know where it might end up. But talk about mentors for a sec. Yeah, sure. To your point, whether you've been to the Olympics, Com Games, whatever, performed at sport in a senior capacity, kids love it, they look up to you, they listen to what you say, and they remember it. The amount of times I've worked with a kid at a school that took a photo with me 10 years earlier or their mum remembered me running at the MCG, or their dad, whatever. It is quite amazing how far and reaching sport can be and what an impact, positive impact you can have, and negative, if treated the wrong way, uh, on, on young people. But mentors play a huge role, and I, I sort of touched on it before um, when we spoke a little bit about being selfish and an athlete. Ironically, I didn't have someone that I looked up to um, in any particular capacity. I, I was really lucky. I was one of three boys. I'm the middle of three boys. My younger brother, Neil, played basketball for Australia and um, Melbourne Tigers, very successful, run a couple of championships. My older brother, he lives in the UK. He's a financial analyst for HSBC. Uh, and we were very competitive. And we were, look, we're not super tight, but we always keep in contact. And we were always, when we were growing up, competing against each other back and forth in the backyard. And I always took how I performed against those guys to be a real indicator as to how I was going. And uh, and that was a real honour to beat my older brother and it was a real disappointment if my younger brother beat me. You sound like the Chapel brothers who went on to do do reasonable things in cricket. And and it was just a a great leveller. And one of the other things that I was really, really lucky to have when I was growing up in school and then in sport was a really good group of friends. And in many respects, they were my mentors and they still are because they were my level. They, they never changed throughout my sporting career, no matter what I was doing. Whether I was running at the MCG and they were in the stands watching me, giving me shit with a T-shirt on there saying, you know, silly things. Um, as proud as they were of me, they still mocked me and they, they did it throughout my career in a fun way. And my brothers were the same. And I think from that perspective, mentors are great because they can advise you and they can talk you through different situations. But from my perspective, I didn't need confidence I was very confident I didn't need to be told where I wanted to go how to get there because I knew I wanted to do it I knew how to get there Um, what I needed was people to be next to me all the time and just keep it normal uh, and keep me level-headed and that's from that my perspective that's where those guys as much as they were my friends or my brothers they were really my mentors because they helped keep me grounded my brothers never really said anything, you know, Craig, you're really good at this or, you know, well done or whatever. It was not that kind of relationship. It was always trying to push each other to be better. And after when I qualified in 2012 for the London Games, I'd come back after having three Achilles surgeries and it was probably unlikely that I would qualify. And I did. I ran the, the Nationals, won the race and won it at Olympic A standard. And I was driving home afterwards and I was going to the pancake parlour because it was the only thing that was open <laughs> on the road. 
And my brother rang me and he said, oh, look, I, I wouldn't often say this, but I wanted to tell you that that's pretty cool that you've made it to four Olympics. And that, that was all he said and then got off the phone. And for me, that sort of meant more than, than anything else. So I think from that perspective, having people around you that just can, you know, can keep it real, they can call you out if you're doing, it, doing the wrong thing and they can tell you on occasions that you're, you're going really well. So from my perspective, really good group of friends and family being my mentors throughout my career. That's a great answer and it leads to the last question I'm going to ask you, Craig. Thanks so much, mate, for, for being with us. Um, it's great to see you again. Your beard is just superb. Um, well done on growing that. It's taken you a year. You were telling me off camera. It's taken a while, yeah. It almost looks like a beehive. Um, it's labour of love. Now, mate, I ask this to every every guest for, about, for my last question on the wide open road. So what would you tell your 20-year-old self about transition to life after sport if you knew then what you know now? Yeah, it's a really good question. I don't think there's one answer, but I think well, we've spoken about it throughout this, you know, this last 45 minutes or so, is don't be afraid to, to get on the front foot and engage in every opportunity that you can. Meet people, be open-minded, because you never know where those opportunities are going to represent later in life. And don't underestimate how important it is to start to think about what's coming, because it is, and it's inevitable. And it's not, it's not a weakness to admit that at some point you're going to have to retire. That comes sooner rather than later for some. And for some lucky like me, they get that opportunity to run all the way to the end. Uh, and then the decision is quite an easy one. But I think that you've got to put in place some sort of mechanism that's going to allow you to help transition beyond sport. And that can be having conversations very early on in your career with people. Like, if, you know, a lot of these athletes may have sponsors or partners that they're working with, and there's no harm in actually starting to say to them in those negotiations early on, listen, I know we want to talk about dollars and cents or whatever it might be, but how about some sort of internship where I can actually come in and sit in the office for a couple of hours every, you know, every two weeks learn a little bit about what this is and is there a potential pathway for me later on. Those conversations in sports like track and field need to happen. They don't happen enough um, because a lot of – we're not like the AFL and when I'm talking about track and field or the NRL or a lot of these other codes that have multiple opportunities for athletes when they finish up, whether it be in media or in coaching roles within the clubs or in the AFL itself or NRL itself. In athletics, it's a very independent sport. You're on your own when you're finished – you're basically left to your own devices to go and, and find your own way. So if you can use your networks while you're in sport, I would strongly advise, and I wish I had known that more. I was very lucky that I was able to do it myself, but I wish someone had sat me down at the beginning and say, you're going to meet a lot of great people throughout your journey. Make sure you keep those connections and those networks open as you go through because they're going to kind of come and help you later in life. That's a great way to finish, Craig. Great to see you, mate. All the best and look forward to seeing you again soon. See you guys. Thanks for listening, everyone, to the latest episode of the Wide Open Road podcast. I'm grateful to each and every one of you for tuning in and for the wonderful support my guests have provided. Their stories are unique, inspiring and powerful, and I'm sure people from all walks of life will take a myriad of learnings about transitioning to the next phase of their lives. Whether that be a professional athlete, a soldier, or perhaps someone who has decided they needed a change of career in order to find out what they were put on this earth to truly do. As in the words of Mark Twain, The two most important days in your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. As the Wide Open Road has evolved, it has become even clearer to me the power of stories. And if you or a friend would like to share your story, please reach out to me at edward underscore kemp at bigpond.com. Thank you for listening. Please stay safe. I look forward to bringing you more inspiring and uplifting stories in two weeks' time.